Very good. All right, it's great to, to be here. Um, we were here at the first service this morning, and I think it's colder now than it was then. <laughs> hopefully, it won't, hopefully it'll start to warm up uh, as the morning goes on. So we're looking at, looking at the passage that was read from 1 Timothy, chapter 6, from verses 4b down to verse 12. I didn't start at the beginning of the chapter, but at the beginning of the chapter, Paul mentions who they are. They are the false they are the teachers of false doctrines in verse three, whom Paul described as having an unhealthy interest in controversies (plural) and quarrels (again plural). In particular, they have controversies and quarrels about words, of which there is no lack in a controversy. And where there's more than one or two controversies, you've got no lack of, of words at all. Okay. So confusion reigns. And the outcome of these controversies was envy, strife, malice, malice, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Anybody ever experienced a situation like that? Paul also tells us that controversies and the controversies and quarrels were between at least two groups. You have to have two to tango, yeah? You can't have an argument by yourself. Um, unless you're schizophrenic, I suppose, but who won't go there? Um, at least two groups, both of which were corrupt or of decayed minds, describing them as those robbed of the truth which left them thinking that godliness was a means to riches. Going to church meant that God will bless you financially and in other ways, physically um, and, and um, health and in all, all ways. But controversies and quarrels are part of life and we engage or are engaged in them regularly. But the difference between us and those who Paul was speaking about in this letter is that they had an unhealthy or a sick or diseased interest in these things. They couldn't leave it alone. They had, to be, they had to be arguing, they had to be um, fighting and, and um, um, in contention with others. He describes them as people of corrupt mind. When something's corrupting, it's rotting. Yeah? And someone once said that they were on the take reprobates who were inconsistent, faithless, unprincipled, unscrupulous and unworthy. Through envy, strife, malicious talk and evil suspicions and constant frictions, they had been robbed of the truth. Which we could reply, maybe they knew the truth or had the truth. Um, it's possible to have the truth and not know it, but um, they had been robbed of it. And the sense here is one of insecurity. Had they secured their hearts against the thief, they would not have been robbed of the truth. And the one who robs it of the truth is the accuser of the brethren. The one who comes to steal, to kill and to destroy. So does truth need to be protected? 
perhaps, but I think we miss the point if we fail to recognize that it is the heart that needs the security of sound doctrine, in which in context must be the opposite of Paul's description of the false doctrines that he opposes. And there's two. The first one is the prosperity gospel, and the second one we identify with um, Jehovah's Witness. But what is the truth? Among other things, truth is always an invitation to faith. Pontius Pilate missed his invitation and so robbed godliness, and so robbed godliness which promotes goodwill, peace, a thoughtful morality, and honest confidence and a steadfast calm was not his or theirs. And the end of the matter was the removal of God out of the relationship which we picture and understand in the word godliness. Okay, take God out of godliness, he left with leanness. Which is meaningless. <laughs> okay. So God gets removed out of, the, out, of the, out of the relationship equation. To be replaced with a gospel that has nothing to say to the deepest longings of the human heart. And an example of which is the prosperity gospel. Prosperity says, trust in God, give your finances, you will twist God's arm and therefore God will have to give you more in return. Okay, in a nutshell. Okay. And the three, component, three proponents of this uh, gospel um, that um, are on the telly most mornings, T.D. Jakes, Creeflo Adola and Joel Olstein, are three well-known false teachers in the U.S., who preach godliness for financial gain. Come to church because God's going to give you more money. The Jehovah's Witness are representatives of the false teachers who have an unhealthy interest in controversy and arguing about words. When you try and have a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, you will argue about words. As I said, true godliness promotes goodwill, peace, a thoughtful morality, and honest confidence and a steadfast calm. In other words, in Paul's words, godliness with contentment is great gain. The difference in Paul's statement of the true gospel as opposed to the false teacher's version was the addition of contentment. Great gain, Paul said, is the result of godliness plus contentment, which is so very different from godliness equals gain. It is very possible to have great gain without contentment. But contentment is the missing link in the false gospel Paul opposes. Where does contentment come from? Do we find more contentment when we gain more stuff? Or when we become less godly? Wanting more. But we cannot purchase contentment. And the more, because the more we work at it, and for it, the more we have to work for more of it. It's a fleeting thing. That is because contentment that does not come from God comes... Sorry, contentment that... <laughs> I missed that. Yep. That is because contentment comes from peace with God. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the great, and the great gain Paul speaks of is the result of a life transformed through lived obedience to the Lord, particularly through the willing sacrifice of all things of which Jesus does not approve. 
when we come to faith in Christ, we sacrifice the things he does not approve of and he changes us. He changes us to be more like him as we sacrifice the things that um, are more like us. It's a transformation. Is it possible to love your enemies without first having obeyed Jesus in in less difficult challenges? If you refuse to give someone a cup of cold water, will you love your enemies? Unlikely. Likewise, is it possible to lay hands on the sick and see them healed if we have not been obedient in proclaiming Christ as Lord and Saviour? Who else are we calling on if we're not calling on him? And if we're calling on him, why don't we proclaim him? No pain, no gain may have come from the coach's box on grand final day, but without the cross we do not have a saviour. And if that cross is not the centre of the life we lead, we will look, but we will never find the harvest. It takes you back to that um, passage in John's Gospel where Jesus said the harvest is ripe, but the labourers are few. Was it that the labourers are few because no one could see the harvest? Paul goes on that we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. We own nothing coming into this world and unless we make our peace with God here, we will leave it just as discontentedly as we did entering it. We've just become grandparents. And having had four children ourselves, we know that kids come into the world very discontented. They're not happy. They're not giggling. They're hungry. They're afraid. They're upset. They're bewildered. And they are possibly the most discontent human beings on the planet and they're not shy of telling you about it. And this need for comfort, this need for reassurance, is it then the desire that this desire moves to have our needs met that leads us to a place that leads us... Sorry, let me try, try that again. Is this then the desire to have our needs met that leads us to the place that leads us to place so much emphasis on owning stuff? Does stuff help us feel less afraid? The more we own, do we think we're more in control? Does it comfort us to know that we are better off than 70, 70, if not 80% of the rest of the human race? Really? No. It's no comfort. And yet that's what we're striving for. The more we have, the less someone else has. Is discontent the reason for our striving after a life of peace and harmony, which more than not is reflected in the ownership of things at the expense of others? Will anything change unless we are content to be, with, to be content with food and clothing and little else? Paul's reference to this phrase is remarkably similar to the wisdom of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, where in at least six places we read the words to, words to the effect that each of them 
may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their, all their toil, for this is the gift of God. Without Jesus, that's the sum of life. Find satisfaction in your work and your toil. Contentment keeps us from temptation. And like those who want to get rich and who fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, contentment beggars the blessing of God, blessing of the gift of God, who always exceeds all of our expectations. Contentment is therefore difficult to explain, except that we know that in it there is great gain. Contentment preserves faith. Like salt that preserves meat, preserves meat, contentment preserves the hope we have in Christ. And that hope compels us to tell others of God's love for them. The world may have gone mad after possessions and riches, boasting of its successes, and sad to say, in some places, so has the church. In Newman, I don't think there's ever been a time when they've been shipped, um, transporting more ore than they have in the past. Gilly can probably tell you what the rate is at the moment. Um, but it is incredible. And Newman is now one of four producers in the Pilbara alone. Three new births have gone into Port Hedland in the last two years. Um, has BHP extended their port facilities? Yes, they have, at Finucane Island. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're trucking it out. And I think pretty soon Australia's going to tip this way. <laughs> um, because the hole in the ground, I don't know, maybe the size of Tasmania, I don't know. <laughs> if you put them all together, we'll have a, a seventh state. Um, called Hold in the Ground. But, um, anyway, um, maybe not in my lifetime. Uh, perhaps the distance between the world and the church that once existed is no longer so clearly discernible. The difficulty in getting clergy to remote parts of the country is an example of what I'm talking about. Called to ministry in the world, the world in Australia seems to be limited to the big cities along the coastlines of the nation, regardless of denomination. So I'm not having a go at the Anglicans. <laughs> Okay. Regardless of the denomination, it is very difficult to find ministers who are willing to go to remote areas. And that's Australia-wide. Mission is seen as something that happens in another third world country. For example, talking to a guy recently who's a bit like Steve Grace, who travels the country with his music and... Um, was also a member of one of the AOG churches over east. He said some years ago the AOG churches, now the Christian Life Census, pulled their mission funding from Australia. So I guess their city churches are not a mission anymore. They're just church. But, the, but Australia is a mission field. Yeah? You walk out the door, you're in a mission field. It might not be Africa, it might not be Southeast Asia, it might not be China or South Korea, but it's still a mission field. But all is not lost, because there's organisations like BCA that continue to provide people and funding for towns across the country. 
There are opportunities like linked churches, which we are linked church with, with um, Barney's here, uh, within BCA that are active and of great encouragement to people across Australia. I don't know if you get the real Australian, but you can read the stories of, and the prayer notes that come through. Um, those prayers that we asked, or those days that we are asked to pray on, we know when our day is coming, even before we look at the book. And we know on the day that it's our day. No, it's just, it's just a reality. The Spirit of God is alive and active. So these things are a great example across, across the country. For example, oh, we're going to be at BCA conference later this year and we're going to share stories about some of the things that, um, that have happened on our prayer days. Uh, the letters we have received from you guys here has been awesome. Thank you, Naomi. I think you were the ones behind, behind the letters. Uh, that, was, um, that was awesome. And the encouragement that it gives to the people in Newman is huge. And it helps us build relationships that have brought a church together. I'm not saying it's the only thing that has helped us, but it's been one of the tools we've been able to use to bring a church together. And when I say together, uh, when we first got to Newman, um, there were about 40 people in the congregation on the Sunday. About three or four knew one another outside of church. Other people had come, they'd come to church, they'd go home, and they wouldn't meet those people again for another week. So changing that was one of the things that we set in motion when we realised what was happening. And having these stories to tell people helps build those relationships. And I said in the earlier service, if you don't know someone here today that you've seen over the last six months or you haven't met them personally, well, go up today and meet them and introduce yourself. Okay? Because um, if you don't know someone in your church, <laughs> um, something's wrong. Okay? You need to know one another. You need to get connected to one another because one day you're going to have to rely on others. And better to rely upon those who you know than those who you don't know. A bit like Jesus. Acts like this, the letters that um, have come uh, to bless the families of Newman. Um, so please, continue doing these acts of, of kindness. Uh, they help to build relationships between members, between churches, and use the opportunities that come your way to continue to bless the families and rest content knowing that your kindness has made a difference in a town where being different is often a disadvantage. I know one, one uh, tradesman who would desperately like to tell everyone he's a Christian, but he can't because he's afraid of being ridiculed at work. And he won't even tell me because he thinks I'll tell others. <laughs> um, and so we're working on that. Okay, but we're and, and disadvantage. Um, sorry, uh, where being different is disadvantage in a town where there is a love of money that is, the root of all kinds of evil, in a town where some people eager for money have wandered away from faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. One of the saddest things we've seen is Christians who will not go to church in Newman. 
They'll go home and go to church. They'll come to Newman. They won't step foot inside a church, the Baptist church, the Catholic church, or the Anglican church, or the SDA church. The love of money, the lure of the lifestyle, and being seen with the right people is too much for some to forego, and their faith in Jesus is relegated to second, third, fourth, or whatever place it ends up on the ladder. Eventually, they will have no faith because someone else or something else has become their God. But you, man of God, Paul writes to to Timothy, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Pursue that which will lead to great gain. Pursue contentment plus godliness. Or the other way around, godliness plus contentment. Pursue great gain. Do not forego and do not give up your commitment in Christ for nothing. Because life without true peace and contentment is nothing. Godliness with contentment is great gain. How much more will righteousness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness add to that which makes us who we are? We are multidimensional. We're not just contentment plus godliness. We are contentment plus godliness plus righteousness plus faith plus love plus endurance plus gentleness. The prosperity gospel says to be faithful and God will have to bless you. But the true gospel says not only will you be content, your riches will include these things, righteousness or friendship with God, faith, the hope in things unseen, love, that which knows how and when to say no, endurance, without which we could not stand firm in the face of ridicule and our own weakness, and gentleness, that which reveals the degree of contentedness in our hearts. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, be accountable to one another. Instead of asking, are you okay, we need to be asking one another, how are you doing? Are you still reading your Bible? We didn't see you at Bible study the other night. Oh, you're not coming to church camp. There's something we can help you with. And believe me, RSVPs are wonderful. (laughs) We've run three camps this year without one RSVP. And it's been murder. (laughs) So how are you doing with your RSVPs, guys? Get them to Rob, will you? Um, It'll save him a a lot of anxiety. And, and, um, and fight the good fight. Keep, the, keep up the good fight of faith. It's worth it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word to us. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for Timothy. And for the, the rich examples and instructions that we um, receive as we read your word. We thank you for the encouragement that it gives. We thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that we get from one another, even across all these, all these miles and distances far away. But we are connected. 
by a chain that cannot be broken. We thank you for our partnership in the gospel with St. Barnabas and, and vice versa. And we ask your blessing upon this church. Bless it with contentment. Bless it with godliness. Bless it with great gain. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.